Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture. First Corinthians chapter 10 and James chapter 1. Now, while you're doing that, if you can uh, answer my question and, and uh, turn pages at the same time, let me ask you this. Who in here is going through a test or a trial right now that you're believing God for? Everybody? Pretty much? Okay. Good. Well, then I'm talking to the right crowd then. This, um, uh, what I want to talk to you about tonight, particularly this being Heathen School, we tailor our, our comments and, and um, uh, the, the message toward healing and, and uh, standing against sickness and so forth. But really, the principle works in every area of life. So um, uh, get the principle, even if you're not standing in, uh, in faith for your healing right now, uh, there will come a time where you'll need to. And um, uh, whatever it is that you are believing for and standing um, on the promises of God regarding, these principles will work in that area for you as well. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. There is no temptation. The word temptation means test, trial, or affliction. It means experience or adversity. In other words, it means the situation you're in. There has no temptation, test, trial, or affliction taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. The word suffer is the word allow. It's translated that way in many other translations. God is faithful. Here's God's faithfulness, who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, if this is saying what on face value it looks to be saying in the King James translation, then God is coordinating the temptations that come against you, the the troubles and the adversities and experiences that come against you in life based on your ability to handle it. That means, therefore... He's coordinating the work of the devil in your life. That's what it says. God is faithful. Here's God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is that he won't let you be tempted beyond that which you're able. Well, we all have different levels of ability, don't we? We all have different levels of faith. We all have different levels of uh, experience in God. Uh, Some of us have been saved longer than others of us have. Some of us have more knowledge than others. We can't say that the body of Christ has a blanket, equal um, it, it is a, an equal playing field when it comes to ability, knowledge, and so forth, can we? Certainly not. you got baby Christians, you got mature Christians. The church is made up of people on all different levels in all different stages of life and development. Therefore, if your ability is different than my ability, then that means God's going to have to coordinate the temptation that comes against you in a different way, maybe a lesser way than he coordinates the temptation that comes against me. Can we find any scripture that says God and the devil are working together? Can we find any scripture that says God is controlling the devil? Really? Where does God control the devil? If God's controlling the devil, then that means one of two things. That means either he did not control the devil when the devil tempted Adam and Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, or he was controlling the devil, which means God's the author of evil. Got to be one way or the other. Or, a third option, third possibility, the one that's scriptural, is that God is not working hand-in-hand with the devil. Which, therefore, if God's not working hand-in-hand with the devil, this scripture that says God will not allow you to be tempted above that which you're able can't mean that he's coordinating the devil's work. Well, then what does it mean? Hold your finger here. We're going to come back, but turn with me over to James chapter 1. 
Now, we agree that all Scripture is inspired of God, given by the Holy Ghost. That means what Paul wrote about trouble that we find ourselves in and what James wrote about trouble we find ourselves in has to both be accurate or else one of them can't be inspired by the Holy Ghost. Right? They both have to be true or else the Bible can't be inspired by God. We operate from the position the Bible is inspired utterance of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, they're both true, which means we may have to change our thinking to fit the truth. Which would be a good practice for the church to uh, undertake. James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. This word temptations is exactly the same word over in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Test trial affliction. Experience adversity. Situations in life. Things that you're going through. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this. Here's how you can count it joy. It's not joyful. That's why we have to count it as joyful. We have to maintain our joy in the middle of hard places and test trials and adversities. And here's how we do it. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But, verse 4, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. I like this from another translation. In verse 3 it says, knowing this, that the interruption of faith's victory works patience. In other words, you're going to be attacked. The devil is going to bring things into your life. He's going to bring trouble against you. Maybe financial trouble, maybe physical trouble, maybe trouble on the job, maybe trouble in your family. He's going to try to stir up trouble in your life. Situations and circumstances in your life for the purpose of getting you distracted from what you know from the Word of God to be true. Notice it's the trying of your faith. That's what the temptation is. That's what the experience of the adversity or the hard place is all about. It's to test your faith. Knowing this, that the interruption of faith's victory worketh patience, but let patience have a perfect work, that victory may be fully restored. Well, that's what perfect and entire wanting nothing would have to mean, isn't it? In other words, perfect and entire wanting nothing has to mean coming through the hard place victoriously. Right? Now, here's the question. If 1 Corinthians 10.13 is telling us that we're all on different levels of ability have different uh, experience levels, different, uh, uh, well, I don't know whatever term, uh, what is the term to use, ability levels and experience levels to be able to handle life's problems. Now, you would expect a baby Christian to be less skilled in handling life's problems than a mature Christian, wouldn't you? But if that's the case, and if that's the way 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that God is working things, then why didn't James tell us something about it in, uh, in uh, the first chapter? Why doesn't James say, now, here's what will work for some of you. Why didn't he give specific instructions for some, additional instructions for others, those that are on a lesser uh, ability level? Why does he give the same instruction to everybody? Because faith works the same for everybody, because Bible faith is based on God's Word, and that doesn't change for anybody. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. How many times have we heard people say, well, I just don't know if I have enough faith for this? You ever had the devil tell you your faith's not strong enough for this situation? You ever had God tell you that your faith's not strong enough? No, you'll have the Bible tell you and God will speak to your heart perhaps and instruct you to what to shore up on. I've had the Lord bring scriptures to my heart several weeks in advance to remind me of a scripture. And I've always recognized that that's him trying to get me ready for something. And if I'll yield to that, that leading of the Holy Spirit on the inside, shore up on that area of the word, then I'll be ready when the trouble comes.
Doesn't mean I can avoid the trouble in every situation. Sometimes you can, but not always. But when the trouble comes, you can be ready for it and you can sail right through. Doesn't mean you'll get an overnight answer. Doesn't mean victory is over, is instant, but it means you'll go through with flying colors, even if it's, even if it takes a while to get there. Because you're established on the Word of God. So why isn't James giving specific instruction to those who have lesser faith and, and other instruction to those who have greater faith? Why does he just say as a blanket statement inspired by the Holy Ghost that when you find yourself in trouble, step number one is to count it joy. Now here's the, what you need to know to count it joys. That experience, trouble, hard places are temporary. But, and they're designed to test your faith. So hang on to your faith. Let faith have a faith develop patience so that patience can develop completeness or restore victory. There is no temptation, test, trial, or adversity taken you, but that which is common to man. You know the only way 1 Corinthians 10, 13 can be true and line up and agree with James chapter 1 is if every Christian has the ability to overcome every attack of the devil, no matter how great or how strong it may be. Now let's stop and examine that for a minute. Is the name of Jesus more powerful for you than it is for me? Is the word of God more real for you than it is for me? What do we use? What does the Bible say say about the tools that we have, the keys of the kingdom that give us authority here on the earth? What does the Bible say about how we can overcome the works of the devil? Isn't it always the word and the name? The name of Jesus? Well, if those are equal for us all, then that means there is no difference when it comes to how we handle situations. Because the, the, the smallest word of God, the, the, the shortest scripture, and the whisper of the name of Jesus from the babiest of Christians is stronger than anything and everything the devil can do. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, this bothered me for years. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 looks like God's picking winners and losers. Looks like God is the one saying, well, okay, I know they're weak over there, so I'll make sure they don't have much come against them. But I didn't find that to be true in life. Pastoring the church, I find out that many times baby Christians, people that are brand new in this stuff, have everything thrown at them by the devil except the kitchen sink, and sometimes that included. And it became a common occurrence in my experience that many times people would just get a hold of the Word of God, they'd get so excited about it, and they'd come running in and saying, oh, Pastor Mike, this is the best thing I've ever heard. Thank you so much for teaching the truth of the Word. And then by next week, their head is down below their ankles because the devil has unleashed hell against them. And it's almost always the same response. I don't know what's going wrong. See, they assume that because the attack has taken place, something went wrong. See, the assumption, and the Bible doesn't say this, but the assumption is if I'm doing everything right, then somehow God will keep me from being attacked. Folks, God doesn't control the attack. And God does not coordinate with the devil and say, okay, he's new in this, you leave him alone. If that were the case, we'd all want to stay new in this, wouldn't we? But in fact, Jesus said that that's how this stuff worked when he talked about the sower sowing the seed. Mark chapter 4. He talked about the, the word of God being heard by four different types of people. Only one of them produced fruit. 
He said the word is sown along the wayside where those that hear it immediately hear it and receive it and the devil comes immediately and takes it away. The next group, stony ground, they hear it, but they don't continue in it. They don't continue to water the seed. They don't keep feeding on the word of God. So they lose what they had to start with. Well, who is it that brings the trouble? Who is it that comes and tries to steal the word? It's the devil. Let me show you what the Bible says. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. If strong faith enables you to overcome everything, but everybody else that doesn't have that strong faith won't put you in the same position, then God's the one picking winners and losers. He's the one that has something to do with it. But let me show you something. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. Let me show you three examples of people that had strong faith. Matthew chapter 8 tells us about the centurion. He sent somebody to Jesus and says, My servant lies at home sick of the palsy. Jesus answered him. This is Matthew chapter 8, verse 7. Jesus answered and said, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes. And when I say to my servants, do this, he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto you, said unto him that followed, this is the guy that I was looking for that God gave great faith to. Then he said to the centurion, highly favored are you because God has chosen you for a special work. Then Jesus answered the centurion and said, you know, I knew there'd be people like this in my ministry that God has specifically called and anointed to have great faith. Well, if he didn't say something like that, then why do we think God has something to do with it instead of us? The centurion said, speak the word only because I understand how authority works. Just as I have authority over soldiers and servants, you have authority over sickness. So speak the word only. You don't have to come to my house. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. When Jesus heard this, he answered and said to those that followed, he marveled and said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. What's he marveling at? If Jesus knows the plan of God, if Jesus knows the work that his father's doing in the earth, what's he marveling at if God's the one that caused this man to have great faith? Where's his surprise? Is Jesus saying, oh man, you're one of those that God gave great faith to and you slipped up on me. I wasn't expecting you today. Jesus marveled because the man had developed great faith. Now let me ask you another question. Are those with great faith the only ones that ever got healed in Jesus' ministry? You can find two people that Jesus identified as great faith, as having great faith. You can see other people that Jesus used their faith as an example. But only two people did Jesus identify as having great faith in his ministry. Yet thousands of people were healed in his ministry. Well, what about those that didn't have great faith? Great faith was not necessary to receive from God. Great faith was something that they had experienced that they that was identified in Scripture as having overcome great adversity, great situations, great obstacles. Matthew 15. Here's a second example. Here's a Syrophoenician woman. Uh, verse 21, then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil, but he answered her not a word. 
And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But Jesus answered her and said, I am not sent to the, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Now, we assume from the proximity that she heard him say this, even though he didn't say it to her. Jesus answered this to the disciples, but he said it probably within her earshot. He is saying she's not the right kind of person. Jesus is saying this. It's not just the disciples that says, you know, Jesus is not laying hands on people today. Come back tomorrow. Jesus says, I'm not sent except to the descendants of Abraham. She's not a descendant of Abraham. I'm not sent to her. Now, folks, for most in most situations I know of and most people I know of, that would be a pretty discouraging thing. I sure wouldn't want God to ever tell me I wasn't sent to you. Or Jesus to tell me that. I'm not sure exactly how to handle that. What did she do? Then she came and worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. I don't care if you're sent to me or not. Help me. What does she have faith in? She has faith in him. She doesn't have faith in herself. She doesn't have faith in her heritage. She doesn't have faith in her forefathers. She doesn't have anything that, that matters to God in that regard. She has faith in him. Lord, help me. Would you do that if you ran into that kind of obstacle? And let me tell you what a close uh, comparison to that would be. I've got a lot of people, bless their hearts, they've come to me and they say, Pastor Mike, I found this Old Testament scripture and it looks like that what I've been believing for God won't do. And they get all upset and, and it's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do here? I've been trying to believe God for this or for that. And, and now I found this scripture that, that I just don't know how to handle this. Let me suggest you take her example, follow her example. When you find something that the devil uses to raise a question, worship God and say, Lord, help me. That's all she did. Why? Because her faith's in him, not in her. She's not moved whatsoever that she's not of the right tribe or descendants. All she's looking for is his help. Then Jesus answers her again. And said, it's not meet or right or appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Healing and deliverance must be the children's bread then, since Jesus said it was. In other words, that which belongs to the children of Abraham, it's not right to cast that over to dogs. Throw that out to dogs. And the woman is still not discouraged. She says, truth, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus said, I'm so glad you passed the test because I knew you were one of those special ones that God gave great faith to. Does Jesus identify anything as having to do with God's on God's part for this woman having faith? Jesus said, woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. She had great faith because of her. Not because of God. She had great faith because of her actions and her decisions and her responses. Not because God had already done something in her. So here's a second example where somebody has great faith because they developed it. Not because God did it in them. Third one's over in Romans chapter 4. Tells us the example of Abraham's faith that we're to follow. Romans chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 
18. Speaking of Abraham, it says, who against hope, meaning literally without natural hope, believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations. Where did he get that hope? According to that which was spoken. What was spoken? God said, so shall thy seed be. So he got faith for seed because God said, this is how it will be with your children. He had faith to have a child because God said, this is how it will be with your children. He didn't have any natural hope. He didn't have any circumstance. His experience, his adversity in life, in his body, said that everything about having a child was out of the question. But he believed in the hope that came from God's promise, this is how it will be with your children. Well, if this is how it's going to be with my children, then I'm going to have to have a child. And being not weak in faith, verse 19. Notice it says, and being not weak in faith. It does not say, and God made sure he wasn't weak in faith. Folks, is this sinking in? Faith is determined by the individual, not by God. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was about a 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. In other words, the American Standard Version, I think, says of this, he staggered not through unbelief, but instead he looked at the promise of God. He didn't look at his own body as being dead. Instead, he looked at the promise of God and was strong in faith, giving glory to God. What does that mean? That means he counted it all joy. That means he's doing exactly what James taught us to do. He was counting it joy, even though his body said, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen, nothing's changing, it's not working. He counted it all joy. And being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham's choice to not be weak in faith came down to what he chose to look at. What did he choose to look at? He chose to look at the word of God instead of his body. That may mean you look at the the word of God instead of your bank book. That may mean you look at the word of God instead of the way your kids are treating you. It may mean you look at the word of God instead of what the doctor says about your body. But whatever the case is, depending on your experience, your situation, whatever it is, weak faith looks at the circumstances. Strong faith looks at the word and counts it all joy. So you got three examples of people that were strong in faith. Now, these strong in faith people, if 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 means that God's kind of regulating everybody's uh, attacks and, and trouble then that means these strong people were able to handle real big stuff, but weak people couldn't. Yet I can show you example after example after example that that came to Jesus, and they had no faith, and Jesus turned it around, gave them the word of God, and then they received. Jesus upbraided the disciples one time, and he said, Why is it that you have no faith? Now, isn't that a question for the Son of God to ask? Why don't you have faith? I thought Jesus knew everything. Shouldn't Jesus be saying, well, I knew you wouldn't have any faith because God's caused you to be one of those people that just don't have any. I've had people come up and tell me that. Pastor Mike, I heard your stories about people receiving by their own faith, but I'm just one of those people that don't have any faith. Well, bless your darling heart, change that. The disciples did. The same ones that Jesus accused of not having any faith wound up doing miracles in his name. 
because they changed their attitude toward the word. It wasn't that God changed them. They changed themselves. There is no temptation, no test, no trial, no adversity that has taken you. Nothing comes against you but that which is common to man. Notice what it says. It says the devil has the same attacks against everybody. He doesn't have stronger attacks against some and weaker attacks against others. He has attacks. And the translators saw this translate, saw the, the, the wording in the Greek language in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But God is faithful. So we know it's talking about God's faithfulness. Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost that God is faithful. But what is God faithful to do? Is God faithful to regulate the devil to make sure he doesn't attack you too strongly? Again, that would mean he's working hand in hand with the devil. He's controlling him. And God is not controlling the devil. God has no control over the devil. He just has a response that's greater than anything that he does. So God's faithfulness is being exhibited. God's faithfulness is being talked about as inspired by the Holy Ghost. But where is God's faithfulness? It's God's faithfulness that he's trying to control the devil and keep him from, from really getting to you. He's like, he, he's like a mad dog. The devil's like a mad dog that God's got on this choke chain or on a leash. And he won't let him chew your foot off, but he'll let him bite your ankle. That's ridiculous. That seems to be what most of the church world thinks or something along those lines. But that's just stupid. God and the devil are not working together. And the devil is not working for God. You're supposed to be the one working for God against the devil. So where's God's faithfulness? God's faithfulness is very simply this. He has empowered you and me and every believer from baby Christian to mature Christian. He has empowered every believer with the means, the wherewithal, and the ability to overcome the devil's attacks no matter what they are because they're all common to men. And because of that, because of the means that he provides for us, he is faithful to make a way for escape. Now, what is the way for escape? James said it was letting patience have her perfect work. James said the escape was letting your faith, the trying of your faith, work patience and enable, uh, allow patience. You allow patience. God doesn't do it for you. You do it yourself. You allow patience to have a perfect work so that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. In other words, so that you can escape the trouble, the test trial and the affliction. So that you may be able to bear it. Bear it does not mean put up with it. Bear it means go through it. God's plan is for you to come out victorious. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6. If these things are true, then the Bible should confirm it, shouldn't it? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, Paul is told, the, given the, one of the most um, succinct expositions on the condition and the state of the church and what the church should be based upon uh, than any other letter that he wrote. And notice he says in Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brethren. In other words, he saved very important information for the last. He's closing the letter by saying, now, this is really important. This is my final thought. Pay attention. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Notice that the Bible says for you to be strong in the Lord. And in his power, it doesn't say anything about you being strong in yourself. It doesn't say anything about you being strong versus being weak. It says be strong in him. 
In other words, your strength is him, not you. No matter how much experience you've got, no matter how long you've been in this, no matter how many messages you've heard on faith or whatever the case might be, your strength is in him because he never fails. You start trying to put your strength in you, you'll give out. But it says be strong in the Lord. So many Christians are trying to be strong in themselves. Abraham wasn't strong in himself. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God, doing what the, what the Lord had instructed him to do. He was counting on the promise of God. He was looking at the promise of God instead of looking at himself. And that was his choice, his decision to not be weak in faith. Well, if he made that decision, can't you make the same one? Can't you make the decision to look under the promise of God no matter what the situation is around you? Can't you make the decision to count it all joy even though it may not be joyful? Sure you can. Everybody can. And that's what the Bible says is being strong in the Lord. It's what the Bible calls being strong in faith. It's not some winner and loser situation. It's not somebody that's got something else that somebody is. It's not somebody that has something that somebody else doesn't have. It's somebody that makes a decision that not everybody's going to make. The decision is to look under the promise of God no matter what the circumstance is or how long it's been going on. And secondly... To count it all joy. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience, but if you let patience have her perfect work, that means complete work, then your victory will be restored. You'll escape the adversity. You'll escape the hard place. You'll escape the trouble. You'll escape the, the, the lack. You'll escape the sickness. You'll escape the problem in your family. You'll escape it all the way through with flying colors. Your choice, not God's choice. Your decision, not God's decision. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Why do we want to do that, Paul? It says, put on the whole armor of God. Here's how you be strong in him. Here's how you choose to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles is an interesting word. but It's kind of an archaic word, and the translators didn't know what to do with it. It means two things. It means trickery, and that's where they get the word wiles. But moreover, more than that, it means traveling, traveling over. In other words, a road that you travel on. Now, if we were going from here to, to, to Los Angeles, there are many different roads we could take, but there's one main road, and that's the freeway. Well, I guess depending on what part of L.A. you're going, you could either take the 5 or the 4 or 5. But we understand that the freeway is the main road from here to L.A., or let's say to L.A.X., the 405 is the main road from here to L.A.X. Let's assume that it was the only road. Because this is what it's talking about where the devil's concerned. If I said, I'm going to go to LAX, you would understand if the, L- if the 405 was the only road between here and there, you would understand that I would have to get in my car and take the 405 from here to Los Angeles International Airport, right? The devil has only one road to travel. That's what this word means. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Stand means to resist. Stand means to overcome. Stand means to let patience have her perfect work. To be strong in faith, looking under the promise of God and counting on all joy, and letting patience have her perfect work so that your victory is restored. This is the one and only road the devil travels. The one and only road the devil travels, and that is the road into your mind, your thought life. Now, he does use circumstances. 
He does influence circumstances because the Bible says he's the God of this world. But why does he influence circumstances? To bring negative thoughts that contradict the word into your mind. He tries to contradict the word that you're standing on, the word that you're basing your faith on, to say the word is not true. It's the only road he travels. You develop, you defeat the devil in your thought life, you can whip him every time. I can't tell you how many times my faith has worked because I've said what I believe from the word of God in my heart while my mind was thinking thoughts of doubt. I said uh, not long ago, I said something about my mind going haywire. I used this example and I said, my mind was going haywire. Folks, I don't mean that I'm going insane. I don't mean that I can't control my thoughts. I mean thoughts of doubt were coming against me. See, faith is of the heart. And faith of the heart will work even when doubt is coming against your mind. Because faith is not of the mind. The mind is the devil's area. The mind is the devil's territory where he tries to defeat you. Why does he try to defeat you in the mind? Because if you'll think wrong, then you'll begin to speak wrong. And once you start saying something contrary to the word, it stops your faith from working. Because faith is expressed by believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. Not believing in the mind. You want to renew your mind to the word and let your mind gain the experience so that you will think in line with the word. But faith is of the heart, of the spirit. It's not of the mind. So many times I'll agree with somebody and they'll come back and they'll say, Pastor Mike, it's just not working. I've just been having thoughts of doubt all week. That has nothing to do with anything. That just means the devil's doing his job. It doesn't stop your faith unless those thoughts of doubt are received and taken hold of by you. How do you know you take hold of them? When you speak them. As long as you don't say the wrong thoughts or the thoughts of doubt that are coming against your mind, you're still in faith. But that seems contrary to the way the rest of our life, our natural lives work. And so that's what trips people up. So it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the one road that the devil travels. So that you'll be able to build your fortifications. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. If you knew the devil was going to attack in one and only one area of your life, wouldn't you build yourself up in that area? Guess what? You just found that the devil attacks you in one and only one area of your life. That's in your thought life. That's why it's so important, Romans 12, to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, by the renewing, by the renewing, by the renewing of your mind. So that you may experience, prove, experience, literally, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's the key to experiencing the will of God in your life? Renewing your mind to the word. Why? Because that's the area the de- devil comes against you. That's the area the devil attacks you. If you fortify yourself by thinking in line with God's word, then you'll continue to speak in line with God's word and your faith will work Marvelously. Sounds simple, doesn't it? It is. But the devil works really diligently to try to distract you. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The one road the devil travels over. Folks, please get this. If you don't get anything else from anything else I ever say, please get this. The devil travels one road and it's the road to your thought life. It's all he can do. He does not have access to your spirit because it belongs to God. He can't even directly impact your body. He can affect circumstances. He can attack your body. But that's a diversionary tactic to get you to think wrong, get you to think contrary to the word of God so that you'll speak contrary to the word of God. 
Because even as attacks against your body cannot last if you don't take those thoughts and speak them. Remember when Jesus said, take no thought? He was talking about the uh, uh, God providing for the birds of the air. He said uh, uh, the grass of the field was arrayed in, in something greater, more beautiful than Solomon. what Solomon wore. He said, God feeds the birds. Are you not much more uh, worthy than the birds? Will he not take care of you? Then he said this. He said, therefore, take no thought saying, what shall we eat or what shall we wear or what shall we put on? What shall we eat or drink or put on? Interesting the way he said that. Take no thought saying. In other words, he said, don't accept the devil's thoughts. Don't accept thoughts that contradict the word and speak them. Why? Because you're governed by what you say. The Bible says you'll have what you say, not you'll have what you think. Thank God it doesn't say we'll have what we think. It says you'll have what you say. Because you're speaking. Those words that you say are the expression of your spirit. And your spirit rules your existence. Whether positively or negatively. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to uh, stand, resist against the traveling over of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Where are you going to come in contact with those evil spirits more than any other place? In your thought life. It's such a waste of time for Christians to go around trying to pull down strongholds out of the air. Really? You're going to do what Jesus didn't do? Jesus defeated the devil and stripped him of his heaven, uh, stripped him of the keys of hell and death. But somehow or another, that didn't take care of all the power of the devil, so he needs us to pray in some weird way. Or maybe get up on the, the highest mountains in the area or the highest buildings in the area so that we can pray down these strongholds. Give me a break. The work of Jesus wasn't sufficient, so he needed your prayer. Seriously. Who do Christians think they are? No, he's talking about the same thing. The devil travels one road. Principalities travel one road. Spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places travel one road. It's the road to your thought life. You learn to control your thoughts and control them with the word of God. Keep them in line with the word of God so that you speak in line with the word of God and speak only what the word of God says. You'll never have another problem with the devil in your life. Doesn't mean he won't attack you, but it means you will have found the key to victory over him. You know why so many Christians are worried about the devil? Because in their minds, they've got it built up that he's bigger than God. Or if they, if they don't think that he's bigger than God, they can't figure out why God won't work when the devil is attacking them. But when you come to the realization that the devil is this real itty, itty bitty little fella that travels one road, and that is the road into your thought life, trying to get you to agree with whatever he brings to your mind. With the full realization that if you don't agree with him and don't say what he says, don't speak the thoughts that he brings to you, he has no control over you, then you start seeing things the way they really are. Bible says that at the end, when the devil is brought before the Lord and finally judged, everybody, it means you and me, are going to look at him and say, is this the guy that caused all the trouble? A lot of Christians are going to be shocked. They're going to be thinking that the devil is some great, big, strong man. They're going to realize that he was just some little weeny wimp guy that was just telling lies all the time. 
Well, why wait till we get there to figure that out? Why not understand that now? So many Christians are afraid to make their confessions. I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. They'll almost whisper it saying, oh boy, I sure hope the devil didn't hear me. He's the one you want to hear that. For we wrestle not against principality, uh, against flesh and blood rather, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. Wherefore, because these evil spirits work against your mind, wherefore, Take unto you the whole armor of God. He's talking about the same thing that he talked about in verse 11. Put on the armor of God to stand against the road, stand against the devil in the road that he travels. Wherefore, because of the evil spirits that operate in the world, take unto you the whole armor of God. He's just explained the reason why you need it. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Another translation says withstand when evil attacks you. I like that. Because evil's attack is a temporary one. For the Christian, for the believer. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, stand. So you have a responsibility. You have two works in this. One is to prepare yourself to stand. That's why he told you the devil travels one road. How do you prepare yourself? By renewing your mind to the word. Everything he's going to tell you about the armor of God has to do with renewing your mind to the truth of the word. So you prepare yourself to stand, and then in the middle of the trouble, you keep standing. What does that mean? It means that you count it all joy in the middle of your trouble, look at the promise of God, and let patience have her perfect work. If what James said was inspired by the Holy Ghost, that's what you do. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. What's the truth? Jesus said, sanctify, James, uh, John seventeen seventeen. Jesus said in his prayer to the Father, sanctify them through thy word, thy word is truth. Having your loins girt about with the word. What's he saying? He's saying, renew your mind to the word. Now, here's the, here's the part that, uh, that does, isn't readily seen. And that is, at the time that Paul wrote this, he was in prison in Rome. Now, Paul's imprisonment was, uh, for the most part, he was tied to or chained to a prisoner. For part of the time that he wasn't tied to him, there was a prisoner right there in the cell with him or outside the cell door. He was probably looking at a Roman soldier and the armor that the Roman soldier wore when he was using this example. So what is he talking about? He's talking about what girded the Roman soldier. In other words, what tied everything together, he identifies that with the truth of God's word. In other words, everything, the foundation of every part of the armor of God is the truth of God's word, which means renew your mind to the truth. Find out what the word says about you and your situation, what Jesus has done for you, and base that faith in God on that truth. Having your loins girded about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, the Roman soldiers wore a breastplate over them that would uh, stop arrows. Many times they would stop spears. It was a breastplate that, pro- that protected their core being, protected their heart. One of the most important things you need to know is that you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Not because you feel righteous. You may never feel righteous here on the earth. But it doesn't change the fact that you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. If you use that as a defense against the devil when he tells you you're unworthy and unrighteous and whatever else he uses to describe your sorry condition because of your behavior. If you combat that, if you come against that and use as your defense, wait a minute, God made Jesus to be sin for me who knew no sin that I might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I've run the devil off in the middle of my wrongdoing by saying, it doesn't matter what I did, Mr. Devil, I'm righteous because of Jesus. And it works every time. 
Now I have a responsibility to change my wrongdoing. But you can still use that righteousness as a defense even when you've messed up. Verse 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, the, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the Roman soldiers, when they went to war, they had different sandals. Each Roman soldier had a, uh, had a slave. Whenever they would go and conquer a, a, a city or conquer a people, they would always have slaves that would be left over, and the Roman soldiers would take one of these slaves to themselves. If the slave got killed in the, the course of life's activities or whatever, they would replace their slaves. Usually they'd replace them. They'd either buy one on the slave market or they'd replace one the next time they went out to war. But it was important to have a slave because you had different parts of the uniform and different weapons that they took and carried for you on your way from your, you know, wherever you were in camp to the place of battle. And there were different, uh, uh, different, uh, weapons that they used based on the people that they were going out against. There were different, uh, uh, pieces of their equipment that they would use based on the terrain. It's just like in football. If you, uh, depending on whether a football team is playing on artificial turf or on grass turf, grass turf, they'll use cleats. If it's muddy, they'll use long cleats. If they're playing on artificial turf and they don't use cleats, they use more like a tennis shoe type thing that just has a different type of grip. They're looking for something that will give them the best possible traction. Well, the, 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 uh, the piece of the armor that was one of the most feared by the enemies of Rome were the long spike shoes. And they, they wouldn't walk in these things, but they'd get to the place where they'd be ready to go out to battle, and their slaves would bring them, the, bring the soldiers these long spike shoes, and they would take them for several reasons. If they're fighting out in the open terrain, then it would give them traction. It would be like a cleat on a football field. But secondly, they would use these things when they got their enemies knocked down to stomp on them, and one stomp would drive these spikes through their head or, or body or whatever the case was. These things were greatly feared. Because many times what would happen is the, the enemies of Rome would come out and they'd try to defeat the, the Roman soldiers. And all the Roman soldiers would do is hold the shield up and cut out their legs from under them. Because once they got them down, they just stomped them with these shoes and it was easy pickings. It's easy to defeat. And so when Paul talks about your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the gospel of peace is very simply this. God has made peace with mankind through the work of Jesus. In other words, God's always on your side. But that peace meaning God's always on your side, is a weapon you can use against the devil because God's on your side against him. So that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about nice shoes. He's talking about weapons. Are you out there? Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Do you realize what an advantage it is to know that God's always on your side? Now he's talking about the fight of faith. He's talking about standing against the works of the devil. Do you know how what a comfort it is when your mind is renewed to the fact that God is always on your side? He can't be against you because your faith is based on his word and he always confirms his word. That's what you need to take in with the devil. When the devil tells you this is not going to work, you need to see yourself equipped with this armor. So, oh, Mr. Devil, just wait. And remember one of the things that Jesus said that, uh, that God said when the curse came upon the earth and he was talking to Satan? He said, you'll bruise Jesus' heel meaning the body of Christ included, but he'll crush your head. Think about crushing the devil's head with these long spike shoes. Folks, let me tell you a little secret. The devil is a whole lot more afraid of you than you are of him. That's why he tries to keep you in the dark about who you are. Because if he can trick you, if he can travel over in the road to your mind and convince you that you're not who the Bible says you are, then you're no threat. But if you find out that you really are who the Bible says you are, he is toast.
when it comes to coming against you. And your feet shall with the preparation of gospel of peace, above all, literally over all. It doesn't mean this is more important than anything else. It means this is the one that covers everything that you already put on. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. How many fiery darts do you quench? All the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, what does he mean, fiery darts of the wicked? It means whatever attack comes. Whether it's a big attack, whether it's a little attack, whether it's an impossible thing that seems to be coming against you, the Bible says the shield of faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, believing the word of God and confessing it with your mouth, that shield of faith will quench, stop, overcome, put out everything the devil brings against you. He didn't say most of them. He didn't say all but the really big ones. He said all the fiery darts of the wicked. Above all or over all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you, not God does it, you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. You're the one that uses the armor, not God. And all of this is based on renewing your mind to the truth, who we are in Christ, what belongs to us, what the Word of God says about our situations, and so forth. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. That means any work of the devil in any way, any area, any way. Your faith can overcome anything and everything the devil does. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I don't mean literally turn there, but remember back to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation, no test, trial, adversity that's taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. What's God's faithfulness? His faithfulness is his word will provide you the faith to quench every dart of the wicked, every fiery dart of the wicked. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able. But will without the temptation also make a way to escape. What's the way to escape? The armor of God. The word of God that's the basis for your faith that quenches every fiery dart that the enemy has. He only has the same things to throw against you that he has to throw against me. It's all common to man. He doesn't have anything new. God doesn't have to come up with some new weapon for you or me or anybody else. The weapons he's provided is sufficient to make a way for you to escape so that you can come through. You can endure. You can walk through in victory. You can let patience have her perfect work and your victory will be restored. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about working hand in hand with the devil. He's talking about giving you weapons that will overcome anything the devil could ever envision or dream up against you or me or whoever. Does this make sense? Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. The helmet protects your mind. Again, he's talking about renewing your mind to the word. What belongs to you through the finished work of Jesus? Folks, there's two things that belong to you through the finished work of Jesus. Number one, Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law. That means you've been redeemed from spiritual death. You've been redeemed from poverty. You've been redeemed from sickness. There are things, however, that God didn't redeem you from, that the work of Jesus did not redeem you from. For example, you are not redeemed from persecution. Well, if we're not redeemed from persecution, what are we going to do? That's where Paul told, that's where God, Jesus told Paul, my grace, literally my power, my strength is sufficient for you. Your faith can still quench the fiery darts of the wicked, but you're not redeemed from persecution. You can't believe that you'll never be persecuted again. In fact, Jesus said those that live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. I guess Paul said that. 
But Jesus said the same thing. If they persecuted me, much more they'll persecute you. So there are some things that you're redeemed from that you need to have your mind renewed to what you're redeemed from. Poverty, sickness, and spiritual death. But there are other things that you're not redeemed from, and you need to have your mind renewed to what's available to you in those situations. And that is the strength of God. And taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, what does he want to use the Word of God as a weapon for? Because the more you speak it, the more it works. The more you speak God's Word, the more you use God's Word, and the way you use it is by speaking it from your heart. The more you speak it in the midst of adversity, in the road that the devil travels over into your thought life, the more you speak the Word of God, the more effective you become to overcome his attacks. That's God's faithfulness, folks. God's faithfulness is not to keep the devil from attacking you too strongly. God's faithfulness is to give you weapons, the Word of God and his name, the name of Jesus, that overcomes no matter what the devil brings against you. There is no comparison to what the devil can bring against and stir up against you in your life and the power of the Word of God in the name of Jesus. No comparison whatsoever. It's like the devil trying to bring, it's like the devil's trying to shove you down and you respond with a nuclear attack. There's no comparison in the, in the attacks. He throws a rock at you, you throw a nuclear bomb back at him. No comparison. It's not you standing there, standing there throwing rocks with the devil, hoping one of you hoping that you get in a better lick than he does, not even close. We could interpret 1 Corinthians 10, 13 this way. There is no temptation, test, trial, or affliction that has come against you, but that which is common unto man. But God is faithful so that when the devil throws a rock at you, he provides you a nuclear warhead so that you can overcome whatever he does. That's really what it means. It means the strength and the power in that which he's provided for you so outmatches and so overpowers anything and everything the devil can do. All he can do is what's common to man. The things that God does are not common to man. He'll do something new and uh, new and, and unusual for you if it's necessary. Jesus said, whatsoever you call for or require in my name, that will I do. One translation from the original Greek says, if I need to make something new, I'll do it. That's how much of an assurance we have of the power of God in our lives. Strong faith depends on your choice. Strong faith depends on your actions, your determination, your decision, not God's. And your faith choosing to count it joy in the middle of your trouble. Choosing to look at the promise of God instead of the circumstances. Choosing to let patience work. In other words, it means it may take time. Not going to be instant, not going to be overnight in every case. Sometimes it is, and boy, it's great when it is. But sometimes it's not. And usually what that means is it takes longer than you want it to. But you continue to give glory to God or count it all joy in the middle of that. Continue to speak God's word. Continue to guard your mind so that you only say what God's word says about your situation. You'll come through with flying colors. Your victory will be restored. And your victory, the restoration of your victory will be such that though it may seem like it's taken a long time while you're in the middle of it, afterwards it'll seem like it was just a moment of time. That's how great the victory is. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to walk by faith.
Father, what a wonderful thing this life of faith is. What a simple but powerful thing this life of faith is. I thank you, Father, that you have given us more power in the Word of God and in the name of Jesus than the devil could ever muster against us. There is no temptation, no trouble, no test, no adversity, no experience that we'll ever have here on the earth that's greater than the power of your Word and the power that's in the name of Jesus. Thank you, therefore, Father, that as we keep our eyes fixed on you, as we confess the promises of God, declare that which Jesus has done for us, purchased for us through his precious blood, we thank you, Father, that victory is restored every time. Therefore, Father, we declare we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We declare, Father, sickness cannot take us under because we've been healed by the blood of Jesus. We declare that lack will never have its place in our lives. It cannot stay because Jesus redeemed us from the curse of poverty. We thank you, Father, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ because of his work, not our own. But because of your great love for us, Father, you brought us into your family. Therefore, you are always on our side. We'll use that as a weapon against the evil one. We'll use that as a weapon to confess the word of God and hold fast to it. Thank you, Father, for restoring us to victory in every aspect of our lives through the power of your word in Jesus' precious name. Thank you, Father, that the shield of faith quenches every fiery dart of the wicked. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.